my own analysis of the situation of Tehranas is that she made a huge big mistake, which is to be convinced that she was able with, with her team to develop a technology from zero. And I think uh, this is something that we learn from business school, that you have first to identify a problem and then to look for a solution. But in my reality and in the one I see in most of the startups around, we do exactly the opposite. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where you will meet the person shaping the current medical advancements and pushing the boundaries of what is currently achievable in healthcare. Be they researchers, doctors, engineers or entrepreneurs, we will explore through in-depth conversations their field of expertise, as well as the journey that took them where they are now. All right, so hello Nicola. It's hello. a pleasure to be with you in the premises of Abionic in Lausanne, I feel quite privileged as I received a very warm welcome from your team. So I'm super thankful for that. I'm really looking forward to learning from you about your activities here in this company, um, which you founded in 2010, and that you're still leading and um, understanding what lies at the core of the technology that you have developed. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about some elements that we've had the chance to tackle in previous episodes, including microfluidics, immunoassays, and nanotechnology in general, things that we discussed in Episode four, for instance, uh, with Lukas Langenegger from Himotune. In episode five, with Deborah Heinze from Lunafor, who you certainly know as well. Of course. And and more recently, in episode thirteen, with Pastrich from from Mimetus. So I'm I'm curious to see how all the dots will connect there, and um, and how all these fields tie into the creation in, of one of the quickest and most accurate diagnostic machine available in the world, um, which is what I think kept you busy over the past twelve years if I'm correct. Um, but before we jump, do jump right into it, would you like to present yourself? Sure. So thank you. And uh, hello, everybody. Uh, so my name is Nicholas Durand. I'm a CEO and founder of Fabionic. And I was born and grew up in Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, I was always passionate about uh, entrepreneurship. And uh, my dream when I was a kid was to be either an astronaut or a high-tech entrepreneur. And <laughs> obviously, uh, I have been a little bit more successful in the second uh, option. The second path. Uh, but uh, still, I'm, I'm very passionate about uh, space and aviation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have been participating uh, to parabolic flight with the European Space Agency. Mm -hmm. We have been testing uh, Bike satellite, and uh, I'm a pilot by passion. Yeah. Uh, do aerobatics, and uh, from the uh, entrepreneur standpoint, I have been starting my first business when I was uh, 14 in the IT, and I was really enjoying creating value and uh, creating my own structure. Mm -hmm. So that was really something I wanted to do when I was uh, an adult and as a as a purpose of life and. My my let's say my curiosity was about uh, being an high tech entrepreneur, so that's why it uh, led me to uh, DPFL, mm -hmm. and uh, I decided to do a PhD in the lab at EPFL, where you have the most uh, uh, high number of of startup coming out from. Yeah, because uh, you are meeting entrepreneurs, and that's a great way to um, evaluate uh, new technologies and thinking about creating a new business, and that's how Abionic was born. <laughs> so you mentioned that you created your your first company when you were 14 and um, I don't remember exactly what I was doing myself when I was 14 but it was definitely like far away from any entrepreneurial project. I think it was called Speed Memory if I'm right and That's correct. you were providing informatic support services to individuals. So 
becoming an entrepreneur was like really a childhood dream and not something that came along during your studies, right? That's correct. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, 14, it was in 1996. Mm -hmm. It was a different time. I mean, uh, not everybody was comfortable with uh, computers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we as children, we were almost born with it. And we were enjoying to try things and to tr solve problems. Uh, and that's where we, we saw that we were able to help people with their daily problems in IT. And that's why we decided with a friend to launch our own business. And uh, we decided to give back um, uh, the revenues of the first three months uh, to mm -hmm. uh, uh, caritative associations. Yeah. Uh, because also for us, it was important to do something for good. And uh, thanks to that, actually, it was a great advertising and we have been highlighted at the TV. So it yeah. brings more <laughs> customers. And that's where you understand the dynamics of entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and you see how you can be driving uh, this kind of uh, solutions. For how long did you do that in the end? A few, a few months, four years. Uh, I cannot say really that it was a, a business at, uh, as uh, yeah. as serious as a, as a real company because we were at school at the same time, and of course it was more something we do by passion uh, rather than uh, than a job by itself. But uh, still, when we finished the school, every not every day, but every two or three days per week, we were um, repairing computers and helping people. So <laughs> that was a great time. Really cool. So you mentioned you have a degree from EPFL in microengineering and a PhD in nanotechnology. Where does your interest for these fields come from and what attracted you to its applications in, in the medical space? So first, uh, microengineering uh, is something that came to me very naturally because I was always passionate with robots, uh, mm -hmm. robotics. And that's really where the science of bringing together electronics, uh, um, microengineering, mechanics, uh, IT, you bring everything together to, to build complex projects. Yeah. And I was really passionate about that. I have been president of the Robotic Association at TPFL. Time, so yeah. that was really something where I was feeling comfortable and dreaming for the future. Um, the medical field was more a consequence of the technology I have been uh, lucky to investigate or to explore mm -hmm. rather than a choice by itself. Yeah. Uh, meaning that uh, I have been studying the, the fluidics at the nanoscale and therefore it was relatively obvious that yeah. the outcome and the potential applications was in the medical field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so maybe now moving on to the company you created, Avionic, um, can you tell us uh, what it is about and what is your long-term vision with the firm? So first, Abionic uh, is initially a platform, a diagnostic platform. Yeah. And it's based on a technology that we invented uh, together with my co-founder, Ivan Murky, mm -hmm. um, that is based on nanofluidics. nanofluidics. So it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, the beauty of exploring something far above microfluidics, uh, because microfluidics uh, over the last decades was a great uh, promises, but uh, still was struggling to find its place in the industry mm -hmm. because you have a lot of problems with microfluidics. You have the air bubble, you have to mm -hmm. have the liquids, uh, you have sometimes electro, uh, electro, electronic effects. So yeah. it's it's a very difficult field. And um, most of the business um, uh, companies were struggling to really bring those uh, technologies on the market. And when you are doing a PhD, it's all about uh, exploring something new. So that's mm -hmm. why my advisor, uh, Professor Philippe Renaud, was uh, deciding to look uh, into this uh, substrate based uh, on glass and silicon 
uh, nanochannels that we manufacture in clean room and to look how the fluids are be belonging, um, uh, behaving in that uh, at that scale. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the idea of the company initially was to simplify the chip and to reuse it to the size where it makes uh, it makes it interesting, meaning really close to the nanochannels. And therefore, you can be very competitive with the cost of goods. So in other words, because it's a little bit long and complex, but uh, we have found a great idea to speed up the time of incubation of uh, immune assays. Yeah. And uh, we can reduce a normal test that is normally performed at the lab in three hours uh, down to one or two minutes. Mm -hmm. And you can take any kind of immune assay that is existing in lab and you can implement the capture molecules in our technology. So it's like downsizing, like physically, I mean, the size of the USA and the duration as well. Absolutely. Uh, the duration is the consequence of reducing the size of the assay, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you are bringing the surface closest to the molecules and you avoid them to travel over very long distances for them, meaning mm -hmm. that you are reducing the distance from millimeters down to nanometers, and therefore you are reducing the time of incubation. Can you explain in simple terms the, what what type of immuno assay and what the, what's the reaction exactly that's happening into the cell that you're talking about? Sure. So in other words, it's a kind of miniaturization of a bottle where you mm -hmm. are going to make the immunoassay inside the bottleneck and you are filling the bottle from the bottleneck uh, using a, a capillary pump that we have in the reservoir and you immobilize on the surface of the bottleneck uh, the capture molecule. And mm -hmm. uh, you can perform any kind of immunoassay inside this kind of setup. Uh, of course, we have been spending more than 10 years of development to really master the immobilization of those molecules in such a settings. It's yeah. really something unique in the world. We are the only company doing that. And uh, I have a, the chance to have a fantastic team of biologists that have been working very hard to achieve uh, such great results. And of course, we can always be better. We have plenty of ideas to improve the setup. But today we can claim that we have the world's most rapid uh, immunoassay platform uh, in the market. And uh, we like to also to say that we are Uh, the Nespresso of biomedical uh, diagnostics <laughs> because it's a very similar process. You know, mm -hmm. you have a cheap reading system and you have a, a system of menu based on capsule and uh, using a drop of blood or saliva or urine, you can get the results in a few minutes uh, directly on site with the same quality uh, than the lab. So since we're in the in the middle um, of the technical specs, I I would like to look as uh, to I would like us to look at the types of tests that you already offer with the device. So I've seen that some were geared towards the detection of sepsis through a protein called PSP, some for the detection of the now well-known COVID-19, some for the profiling of certain allergies, and and many others. Are you as you're able to apply your technology across a very broad range of tests and disease areas? I was wondering about how you were making the choice of which test to develop first for which is a rear and how you were prioritizing these options for your for your pipeline sure so again uh, when we developed the idea of the technology platform everybody's looking for having the biggest menu as possible It's mm -hmm. like a computer. You like to buy the computer, but you need to have a lot of different softwares to make it really useful. Uh, however, when you are based in Switzerland, you have to start somewhere and you cannot raise the sufficient amount of money to really start uh, producing a, a huge menu. So you have really to focus on, uh, on first indications. So for that, um, and that's a good question, 
back in 2010, we have been visiting the World Health Organization, which is next door mm -hmm. in Geneva, and right. we have been asking them what will be the best test that makes sense for you uh, to have so on, on such a point-of-care platform like ours. Mm -hmm. And I remember the guy um, looking at the statistics and saying, oh, I see that the uh, Prostate cancer is a very important disease, and mm -hmm. if you can detect that, uh, that will be something huge because today uh, there is a huge need for diagnostic of prostate cancer on mm -hmm. the market. So I was uh, writing the business plan and uh, trying to convince the first jury members about this uh, these possibilities. And actually, one of the physicians that have been uh, in the jury was extremely. Um, uh, negative about that idea yeah, he would he, he just said oh this is something very stupid in the sense that the prostate cancer is, is developing over 10 years so having a five minute test is uh, of no value uh, and uh, the PSA uh, which is the biomarker yeah, at the time mm -hmm. it's just not working you know so it's like uh, throwing a coin and that's yeah, no yeah. no value so we were a little bit um, disappointed, but he was completely right. So we decided, we decided to take the opportunity in the other directions uh, or the other perspective in the sense that we say, okay, let's take it from the angle of what kind of um, disease will make sense for us to pitch as a platform, something refreshing and something new that is useful. And uh, I remember we evaluated uh, and identified uh, allergy testing because mm -hmm. allergy uh, based on the measurement of IgE, uh, immunoglobulin yep. E, uh, is something very important. And uh, actually, you don't have really point-of-care platform on the market for oh, the that. rapid mm -hmm. diagnostic of allergy. So we started pitching that idea on everybody like that because you are either allergic yourself or you know someone close to you that is allergic. So big market, big needs. Uh, the skin prick test is obviously a prehistoric uh, method <laughs> of, uh, of testing people. So really something that makes sense from a drop of blood to get uh, 10 allergies test uh, in in uh, in a couple of minutes um, we developed um, respiratory allergies mm -hmm. the standard one uh, cat dog mite grass uh, pollen and so on mm -hmm. and, and then we realized that we need a lot of money to develop a real full menu of allergy because yeah. allergists were typically uh, expecting 30 or 40 allergens to really use it so we were struggling to find investors ready to put the money for completing the menu mm -hmm. so even if the if the platform and the test were really good um no money here for for continuing the development so we had to rethink and to decide it uh, we decided to look for a minimum viable product yeah. so meaning that a product that will make sense on its own for boosting the, the platform and uh, taking into account that we have this advantage of being extremely fast uh, we decided to naturally go to the sepsis because in sepsis you have to go very fast you know you are losing eight percent of average every hours delaying you from the treatment mm -hmm. and and we have been evaluating a new biomarker called pancreatic stone protein psp and this marker was not really adopted by the other competitors because uh, the licensing fees were pretty high and uh, at the uh, let's say the initial clinical demonstration were, were not so good in terms of considering uh, the identification of septic patient versus non-septic non patient. Ones. I mean, it was good. It was the better, the best uh, myomarker, but it was not really better than the others. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that people have not looked after was the predictive value. 
Yeah. And the dynamic of the marker with time. And that's where we decided to uh, launch uh, clinical trials on severely burned patients because pa burned patients are, are interesting population of patients coming at the hospitals mm -hmm. without any infection. And because yeah. of the burn, they are going to develop mm -hmm. infection. So we were able with um, something like 40 patients to really monitor the increase of the PSP with time. Mm -hmm. And we realized that the marker was raising three days earlier. Mm -hmm. And if you remember the 8% survival rate every hour <laughs> yeah, treatment, I mean, that. three days mm -hmm. is the difference between uh, life and death life and, and death. Uh, going back home a few days after or dying at the hospital. So mm -hmm. extremely excited about that. We negotiated uh, the, the license and then the exclusivity on the marker. Uh, and then we raised additional funds to really launch the clinical trials. And we spent a lot of money in uh, those clinical trials. Uh, for example, we had... Um, uh, uh, we had uh, uh, clinical trials in 14 sites in Europe, uh, yeah. uh, four countries, uh, several hundred of patients. And, and that was extremely positive. You know, we really demonstrated this capacity of, uh, of um, predictive value mm -hmm. of one up to three days earlier, depending on the population and the setting. So this is really making sense. And to come back to your question, we also developed additional tests uh, like uh, ferritin for iron deficiency, mm -hmm. especially because at one point we have been testing our platform uh, on a commercial adoption at the pharmacies. And that was a test that we think was making sense. We developed also thrombosis based on the dimer uh, that is making sense on top of the sepsis test at the acute care uh, segments. And uh, now we are finalizing a CRP test for inflammation. Yeah. And uh, of course, when COVID ar arrives, uh, we, had to, we had to test our technology for COVID. Yeah. But there we were extremely disappointed by our country because uh, where uh, in the US, every competitors were receiving a lot of money for developing a COVID test. Mm -hmm. Here, the, the government completely ignored our proposition to develop a COVID test. So we had to identify uh, some uh, private investors for financing this development. Mm -hmm. We spent uh, almost 15 million to, uh, yeah, to develop, develop this test, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, and that has been evaluated by Unilabs, uh, which is a famous laboratory in Switzerland, as one of the best in the market, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, very good performances. We were happy with that. Uh, and uh, the Swiss government said, oh, but sorry, we cannot uh, uh, claim to be reimbursed or using your test for getting a QR code validated a certificate mm -hmm. because you, we want you first to be on the European common list. And the reason for that, as we, what we have understood, is that Switzerland was fearing to lose the reciprocity of the COVID uh, travel pass. Uh, and uh, Europe changed its rules and was requesting that all tests were on the common list. So mm -hmm. they said, okay, you have first to be on the European common list, which we applied, but we were rejected because we were a Swiss company that have been working with Unilabs in Switzerland. Yeah. And Switzerland is a third part <laughs> country. So like a chicken and the egg problem. We are now reproducing the study in Italy, which is uh, getting very good results. So we are exciting, but we lost... Yeah. yeah, more than a year for stupid reasons, mm -hmm. and this is really uh, something that makes me anger. <laughs> because yeah, I, I can understand. You know, when we have a crisis and when you are putting so much effort and yeah. money for trying to be uh, a, a piece of the elements to solve the crisis, and mm -hmm. you have a search absence of pragmatism. Yeah, and the technology is there, and you cannot afford. Yeah. That's very frustrating. Yeah. 
Okay, but so in the end, the, the first test that came onto the market is the one for sepsis, right? So, uh, no, it was the allergy. The allergy. Now we put uh, the, the, the more energy on the sepsis one sepsis. because this is something that we see is making a huge difference on the market. Mm -hmm. This is really impacting uh, patients' life for the good. And uh, this is also very important for us as a company uh, to make something for good. Uh, so that's why we are really putting all our effort uh, for promoting this test. Yeah, it's interesting because with Lucas from, from Imogen, we discussed that it's more about the treatment than the detection and they're using their kind of like futuristic machine to filter the blood with these magnetic nanobeads that are able to like rebalance the, well, like rebalance the, the, the immune balance in a way. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, definitely like a huge, um, a Eugene might need. Yeah, because maybe if, if I may, you know, and, and Lucas is doing a tremendous job as well mm -hmm. in that field. Uh, sepsis is the second cause of death. And nobody knows about that. You yeah. know, it, it, here, in, especially in Europe, uh, nobody heard really about sepsis. Uh, and actually, this is a huge problem. And that will be most probably also the next pandemic. Uh, because uh, mm -hmm. you have the resistance to antibiotics that is now raising. And for physicians, it's extremely difficult to know whenever to give the right antibiotics at the right time. Mm -hmm. So that's why we are uh, a piece of the puzzle again. We don't say that we are going to make everything alone, but we are an important piece of identifying the problem very early on yeah. and then driving to the right treatment for the right reason. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, going back to the to the technology um so we mentioned that the approach that you're that you're relying on with the obioscope um which is the device that you develop is on immunoassays but are you able to run other types of tests as well um molecular ones like pcr for instance with whom with which now we are all accustomed to um using the same platform and if not are you considering adding such testing modalities on the obioscope so the answer is yes, of course, the, but you need to, a lot of money to develop those technologies. Yeah. And we had to make some choice. So that's why we have been focusing on the immunoassay. Mm -hmm. uh, for molecular diagnostics, it's possible as well, but you have to consider all the, the pre-treatment steps, like the amplification. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's not that easy. You may yeah. have some additional device to be compatible with that. Uh, we have been showing that uh, it's working also with uh, with different other uh, spaces, but um, we are exactly at this point where the let's say theoretically we can do anything, but you need a lot of resource to to do it, yeah. and and we don't have those resources. So you need to make some choice and smart choice to make sure that your company can move forward, and that's why also you need sometimes to focus on different uh, on, on on a specific field. To give us an idea, like, for example, when you, from the time where you started the development of the abioscope and the time when you launched the first allergy testing, how much investment was that? Not, not taking into account all the work that you did during your PhD as well, but since the inception of the company. Sure. So um, in total, we have been raising and, and spending uh, almost 80 million, 80 yeah. zero. Which is a, a huge amount, an absolute, that's yeah. absolutely clear. But uh, it's also in the same time a very small amount. If you benchmark to other uh, diagnostic companies, some that I will not name are spending 1 billion every year in yeah. R&D. Mm -hmm. uh, our main competitor has been raising 1.5 billion for being at a stage of development very similar than ours. Mm -hmm. So everything is relative and you have to take that into account. 
Now the rules have been changing recently with the mm -hmm. new IVDR norms that you have to yeah. respect for putting a product uh, on the European Union market. So it's we need a lot of cash uh, to do all the clinical validations, the documentations. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge work. And again, it's like for, I like to say sometimes um, uh, as an example, the car industry, You know, we have been developing a new generation of car with uh, magical motors that uh, that doesn't require either electricity nor um, uh, fuel. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic, but nobody wants to buy a car from 1950. You know, mm -hmm. They, everybody wants a car from 2022 with all the security, the safety, the norms that require the, the, the quality of the cars of today. Mm -hmm. So it's the same in the diagnostics. You can have a fantastic new technology providing you with high quality um, uh, lab quality results. Everybody wants to have a platform that is never failing, that is uh, allowing mm -hmm. uh, to fall down on the floor and still is working and, <laughs> and so on. So you need to really, from uh, engineering and, uh, and development part, to be at the, at the right level. And for that, there is no miracle. It's, it's extremely expensive. Yeah. All right. Um, for the moment, um, in which medical settings is the abuse implemented? You mentioned sepsis, so I believe this belongs to acute care in the hospital, but I think it given the format of it, I think it, it can be placed anywhere, basically. Yeah, exactly. So it depends on the, on the segments. Uh, for sepsis tests, we are focusing today on the ICU, intensive yeah. care units, because uh, the best positioning is to test every single patient every day. Mm -hmm. Because we have this predictive value that is allowing to detect sepsis uh, three days earlier. So if you are not testing everybody, you are missing uh, some sepsis cases. If you want to use it at the emergency department, it's different settings. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to, to, to confirm the suspicion of a sepsis. So it's uh, more based on some symptoms that you are going to confirm if this is a sepsis or not. Mm -hmm. The COVID test is even different. We have been developing a COVID test that is providing results in two minutes based either on saliva or uh, nasopharyngeal uh, samples. Mm -hmm. So you can use that everywhere. You can use it in pharmacies, at hospitals, but also at school, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, for the ferritin test, we have been selling it at pharmacies because, again, that was making sense for the woman that wanted to avoid to go to the lab or to the physicians to get the results in five minutes from a drop of blood. Allergies uh, test the same. So it depends. Our objective was also to demonstrate the potential of the technology in many different settings, a little bit with a 360 degrees um, uh, strategy. Yeah. to also find the right partners for the future to invest in our company and uh, with a partnership or, or others to, to, to drive their own vision. Mm -hmm. no? But uh, again, you cannot do everything. You have to focus at one point to yeah. make it uh, a sustainable business. And for that, we are also looking for the right partner. <laughs> All right. Um, one thing where I'd like to pick your brain on is uh, an emerging field that the pandemic accelerated in a way, um, namely home testing and the possibility to perform medical-grade diagnostic tests from the comfort of our homes and which fits the current trend we see where lots of people within healthcare are trying to find ways to decentralize care in general and facilitate its access to those that need it most. Um, when I see the size of your device, um, the pace at which the results are provided, um, how easy it seems to, op to operate, do you think that the abioscope or a similar system would eventually make it to our homes at some point and be used as a first-line indicator to inform us about what we might have whenever we feel sick? 
So I'm a big fan of this idea, for sure, and I'm a big believer that it will happen. But uh, it will take much more time, and we are not ready today. Uh, and I, when I say not ready, it's not abionic, not ready, it's yeah. society. I mean, today, people are still... Uh, uh, still need to have the, the trust of the physicians uh, giving the diagnostics. And I think this is fair and this is, um, this is a, a period that will continue over the next decade at least. Mm -hmm. uh, however, now the technology and especially also when it's linked also to uh, in, uh, artificial intelligence is offering you a new world of possibilities in the terms of identification of disease. And I think a society where you can have such a device at home that will provide you with a, a scale of, um, let's say, of urgency of uh, or yeah, orientation to which specialists and which experts you have to consult for the <clears throat> for the right reason and for yeah. the right reason uh, at the right time, th that makes absolutely sense. Mm -hmm. But again, that will take uh, still a few years to go to that point, and that will need also a lot of investment. Now that being said, uh, the other perspective of the society is not going in that direction, which is the regulatory uh, pathway yeah. for achieving that. Today, people are so fearing, uh, um, society is so fearing that uh, uh, manufacturers are putting on the market uh, bad devices mm -hmm. to protect the patients that they are have been increasing strongly the barrier of adoption. And, yeah, uh, and that makes this new technology is much difficult to achieve their market. Mm. And when you were talking about the limiting factor from, is there also like um, from the medical community, like that's something they would not accept as well? So let's say that we have been always uh, integrating the physicians as the mm -hmm. key opinion leader because we want also to demonstrate our technology is, is really good for diagnostics. Yeah. Uh, for example, we could have gone to the veterinary market. That would have been much more easy. <laughs> but uh, we, want, we, we wanted to avoid the perception of not good enough to be really in the yeah. human diagnostics. Yeah. Uh, so we, we decided to go the hard way. Um, but uh, yeah, I think physicians are always reluctant to use new technology because uh, they are also um, educated to follow guidelines. And uh, if you are not in the guidelines... It's a risk, you know, mm -hmm. and we are in a country, on, in an environment where risk-taking is a problem. It's not an opportunity. And especially in the medical field, it's something that is really difficult to, to change as mm -hmm. a mindset. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to push sometimes and say, oh, but uh, please look at the glass empty full and not empty, uh, half empty. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's still very difficult for them to, to to adopt new technologies and to give a chance to to something new. Or you have to find a few that are actually willing to adopt these technologies of quite course. early on. Of course, and and it's always about data, you know. But uh, data, you will never have enough data. <laughs> yeah, that's so. The problem. Yeah. And especially also in the medical world, you know, you ha you are dealing with keeping leaders that are professors that needs to publish and that needs to make clinical client trials. So they they are always very open to to establish those uh, clinical trials if you can pay them for that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, at one point, uh, and especially in our case, now we have more than forty peer reviewed publications mm -hmm. and uh, and studies that have been showing that the markers and the platform is is going well. Uh, is performing well. So at one point, you need to also be successful on the market and making a real difference for the patient because mm -hmm. generating data is uh, <laughs> is always valuable, but has a cost as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Moving away from your um, adventure with Apionic, there's a particular event that happened this year and which rightly received a huge amount of media coverage. And I'm talking here about the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. 
for our listeners that may have not heard about it, she's the founder of the former US-based company uh, called Terranos, uh, which reached, reached in 2015 a valuation of $9 billion and claimed to have developed a revolutionary system that was able to measure many, many different biomarkers from a single drop of blood, which in reality never turned out to be true. Um, so earlier this year, she was found guilty on several counts of wire fraud and sentenced to many, many years in prison. Um, I'd be curious to know whether Terranos had inspired you at some point, especially early in your adventure at, with Abionic when the hype around that company, meaning Terranos, was so high, and whether there were any learnings that you derived from that story and that all things considered you are now applying in your own company. So first, Terranos has always been a problem for us. Uh, it was a problem be before it was known as a scandal because everybody was saying, I, this, those guys has raised almost a billion dollars, so you have no chance to yeah. do something mm -hmm. similar. And uh, after the scandal, everybody was saying, oh, if they were cheating, you must be cheating as well. So it's, it's very complex. And still today, uh, we have always to be sure that people understand the technology. So we have to be very transparent about the tricks behind mm -hmm. and, and we have to show data. We have to show that we are on the market and that actually it's really working yeah. uh, to be really differentiating with them. And uh, it creates, it has been creating in our industry suspicion of uh, people that are really cheating. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really something bad. Now, that being said, uh, my own analysis of the situation of Terranas is that she made a huge, big mistake, which is to be convinced that she was able with, with her team to develop a technology from zero. And I think uh, this is something that we learn from business school, that you have first to identify a problem and then to look for a solution. But in my reality and in the one I see in most of the startups around, mm -hmm. we do exactly the opposite. We yeah, are, start with the technology. We, we access to a technology and then we ask ourselves what, what kind of problem I'm going to solve mm -hmm. with that, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's take the Terrano story again and let's assume that uh, Elizabeth Holmes, that the young lady that had dreamed that pitched very well her story and raised a lot of money, if she used this money to acquire existing technologies and to develop those technologies, she would be successful, you know? Yeah. But because she was a little bit obsessed with the fact that she has something or that her team will be able to develop something that has never existing mm -hmm. that leads to the to the consequence that we know with the exposition of people uh, with wrong results and yeah. the misleading of the FDA and, and so on so it's it's a huge problem at the end but um, it could have been a success uh, if uh, she would have meant it uh, differently okay now interesting thanks for for sharing your perspective on that um Without disclosing any company secrets, what are the milestones ahead of Appionic, both from a technological and a commercial perspective? So now we are really looking for the right partners to boost our technology on the market, uh, meaning that we, we need to find also the right vision for the future for bringing this uh, technology accessible for anybody. Of course, we are now putting a lot of effort also in the clinical trials in the US to be FDA approved next year. Yeah. So that's exciting time where we get uh, positive feedback almost every week from different hospitals that are using our system mm -hmm. and where we can help to save patient life. So um, we, I, I don't know where we are going to be in five years, but yeah. uh, definitely it's a story where we will have been uh, impacting people for good. How many systems are implemented all over the world for now? Today, um, I will say um, 150. 150. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's quite a number. 
Um, preparing the episode, and I think you mentioned that in your intro, um, so I saw that you were a, f- a flight pilot doing aerobatics. So that reminded me of the famous Red Bull Air Race, um, where you see these planes going at a crazy pace through very sinuous paths and doing all kinds of stunts. Um, you're actually the second guest on the show be, being a pilot as I saw your work after Daniel Kraft that I had a chance to receive in episode 12. Um, given the degree of extremity of this discipline, is this your ultimate way to to decompress and, and recharge your energy levels among all the first that comes along being an entrepreneur? I would say that uh, for me, uh, it's uh, a good way to decompress. Uh, for sure. Uh, you know, when we are doing aerobatics, you have to be only concentrated of what you are doing and you are evolving in the air in a very intense way. Uh, mm-hmm. You are taking accelerations uh, that can go uh, between typically minus six to plus seven mm-hmm. G and uh, you, uh, I'm doing, uh, doing some competition. So you have also to be very rigorous and uh, very precise in your movement and mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying that. And uh, yeah. when I have a bad day and when the situation is uh, um, is uh, very difficult, you, doing a flight like this one in 20 minutes is just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's empty your head and, and then you are much feeling much better to uh, go back to work and, uh, and take the challenges that you have uh, every day. It's like, yeah, I guess it's like a reset, basically. Yeah, and, and <laughs> the, the more you do and the more you need to do. Uh, it's like a drugs in the sense that you are having so much fun in evolving in this three-dimensional di- three uh, that it's, it's, I, I cannot imagine now not doing it anymore. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I need it. <laughs> yeah, no, really cool. No, really, really cool. I'm conscious of your, of your time and um, yeah, we've, we've covered a lot of elements from, you know, the... the where Abionique is coming from, your your background, the technology, how it works, and um, yeah, and talking a bit about this Theranos study story. Um, at the end of the of each episode, I ask a couple of recurring questions to every guest. Um, the first one is, what resources would you recommend us to check out in in order to know more about the field in which we evolve? Be it books, publications, websites. So, because we were discussing about Tyrannos before, I will definitely recommend uh, people to to, link, yeah. to read Blood Blood exactly. He is the he is the journalist who um, popped up the scandal. Yeah, uh, the the book is really well written. It's an amazing story. It's also amazing to when I read it uh, how many scenes we have been in the same situation. So we never crossed the red line. Yeah, <laughs> I want to real fast that, but uh, this is uh, this is a story we could have li- been living in. You know, uh, again without taking uh, uh, the the red line, uh, it's it's not you cannot achieve uh, and changing things without taking risk. And by taking risk, you are never hundred percent sure it will, everything mm-hmm. will be wor- working. So. It's it's an, an an impressive story, and we understand also sometimes why uh, those kind of in, uh, entrepreneurs are are trying until uh, until they make it or failing until they make it. You know. <laughs> Would you have any tips, like personally, how do you deal with that uncertainty on a daily basis for other people in that field? It's very difficult to deal with that, but it's like uh, when you do presentation over a lot of people, you get used to it. And Mm -hmm. um, you have to, again, be someone very ethics and you have to really draw the lines that you don't want to cross and uh, Mm -hmm. you have to work very hard to achieve your dream. Mm -hmm. But, But again, without crossing the red lines. Yeah. 
Could you share with us an anecdote from your work which made you realize the impact that you were having on patients' lives? Uh, yeah, so for example, one very recent cases that we had uh, been reported to our company is uh, uh, ICU uh, physician that uh, have been measuring the PSP on one of the patients that was hospitalized and realizing that the patient was uh, with a value very high, meaning uh, very high probability of uh, developing sepsis in the coming days. And uh, this physician, because the patient was coming back from a surgery, he goes to the surgeon and say, oh, your patient is going bad and you have to go back in surgery. <laughs> It was a stomach surgery, if I'm correct. And and uh, the surgeon said, oh, no, no, my patient is going well. Uh, nothing tells me that uh, I have to go back to surgery. Mm -hmm. And the physician that has been a user of PSP for a while, or is someone very convinced about the marker, he said, mm -hmm. okay, trust me, you know, and take your patient back to surgery. Mm -hmm. And the surgeon said, okay, I take the, the challenge, you mm -hmm. know. And, and fortunately for the patient, it was a good idea because then he realized that uh, the, the stomach was uh, full of bacteria and they had to clean up and the patient could have died yeah, if uh, no surgery would have happened. So this is a typical case where it's difficult to say that we have saved the patient's life, but of course, obviously yeah. the patient today is uh, still alive and mm -hmm. uh, most probably that would not be the case if uh, the first physician was not convincing the surgeon to, yeah. to go back to surgery. So this is the kind of story that we like because we can um, explain that to the team and that motivates everybody to continue this uh, kind of experience. And that's how you convince the people that it makes sense, right? Of course. <laughs> um, at every episode, I really get inspired by the guests that I have the chance to, to receive on the podcast and you're no exception to it. There is Certainly other figures that you are, that you look up to yourself and also involved in the field of medical technology. If you were, if you would recommend one of them as a potential guest for the podcast, who would that be? And why would you recommend her or him? Uh, I can recommend, for example, uh, Michael Friedrich. Michael is a good friend of mine and a very successful entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. He has been founding, uh, for example, Imago a few years ago that yeah. um, he sold. And now uh, at uh, Distal Motion, they are doing a, a tremendous job as well in the uh, surgery robotic. Uh, yeah. uh, so it's also a medical field and uh, it's a great company. So definitely interview Michael that will be a great thing. interesting because I think Deborah told me the same oh. so she gave me the name Michael Friedrich, I was so. hoping Deborah was referring to me but okay <laughs> I will discuss that with her <laughs> all right how can we get in touch with you over over LinkedIn per email yeah Both. I'm an email guy so please don't hesitate to send me an email mm. uh, LinkedIn works as well Uh, definitely not by phone, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, email I will re I will be re replaying. Yeah, great. I will put the links in the description. Is there anything you'd like to um, to add before we wrap up? No, thank you. That was a great experience. Thank you, Michael, and yeah, <laughs> I'm here looking forward for the next podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks a lot to you. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. Don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. Also, I would be really grateful if you could leave a positive evaluation on Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free also to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks, 
and see you in the next one.